3: or online at victoriasecret.com.
4: Welcome to Go Ask Alley, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Rolling on the floor laughing is a thing. I can, I've seen, you know, we've all seen people do it. I've done it. i you kidding? <laughs> For me, now the work is to want what I have even kind of shitty stuff. You know, that's my work, it's, it's imperfect. So let me ask you a question about actors because you are- I sp- hate them. Yeah, me too. We are old fuddy-duddies. We go to sleep at 10, mm-hmm. we wake up at six. We go to bed at eight, so oh, well, there we are go. more fuddy-duddies than you. You are the fuddy-duddiest. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Welcome to Go Ask Ali, I'm Allie Wentworth. You know, I've spoken a lot about aging parents and how we're dealing with our own mortality. And actually, right now, I have a father in hospice, and I'm sitting nearby a Boston hospital where my mother is being taken care of. She just broke a rib and her femur. And a few weeks ago, I was reading the Washington Post, and I read an article about death doulas, and I was fascinated because death doulas or end-of-life doulas are people that help you. They can advocate for you and actually make the transition a little bit smoother. And so I was dying to talk to these death doulas Laura Lister-Mensch used her downtime during the pandemic to be trained as an end-of-life doula and volunteers her services in hospice care. She currently is the first death doula in residence at Historic Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C., where she holds weekly Death Doula Day gatherings. And Valoria Walker, she's an end-of-life doula and the founder of Doula by Destiny. She partners with organizations to promote, serve, and educate communities about holistic end-of-life and advanced care planning. She's an international end-of-life doula association educator and has a master's in management of aging services. My father is in hospice in Washington, D.C. right now. And I realized I didn't even know what that meant exactly. And then I realized that I have grown up in a world that doesn't talk about death very often. And then I was reading the Washington Post and I saw two words, death doula. And I thought, what the hell is that? So let's just start in the most simplistic way. What is a death doula? I'm going to let Val take the definition,
1: but I do want to say that the training is uh, is called End of Life Doula. So it was a little bit um, of a stretch that we called it Death Doula for this other project, but they're interchangeable.
4: Yes, it is. A, it is a more shocking way, provocative way to say it. Yeah. End of Life Doula sounds a lot more calming <laughs> and digestible. So. Val, tell me about an end of life doula. So, an end of life
2: doula is my preference. And an end of life doula starts out, let me just say, with listening. But we come into a sacred space, a space where a person is transitioning to serve them and their families with a sense of humility while we're supporting them, to bring back the humanity and the compassion that we often don't see in the dying process. We work in a capacity of being non-medical, so we're not in there administering any type of medication. We are listening to build trust um, in a non-judgmental way. So if, if a patient or a client is saying something to me that may conflict with me, it is not my place to say, well, Let me try to save you on that, or let me try to change you on that, or let's think about it another way because this dying process is not about the doula, it's the person that's in front of us. Uh, Caregivers are burned out, confused, under trained, so we try to help them go through the process by providing as much support as we can. And so that's what a doula is. We bring deaf awareness, we empower the clients and the Caregiver to speak up because a lot of times, mm-hmm. because you don't know things or you don't know a medical terminology, you may not feel comfortable. So, we bring in a conversation where both parties are on the same page and under the same understanding. And then we go in as a team member most of the time in hospice, not to go in to change the plan, but to see what we can do to enhance the plan for the care team and also for the Person that's transitioning and their family members.
4: That's fantastic. And Laura, you during COVID decided to train to be an end of life doula. And so, what what made you come up with this decision, and how was that process?
1: I've always been someone who felt more comfortable about death than a lot of people around me, and I thought about being a birth doula mm-hmm. when I at a certain stage, but I I really felt like. I'm reaching a certain age, early 60s, where I'm seeing a lot more death in friends and family. A lot of people I know are losing people. COVID. And I, like a lot of people, decided to lean into this during COVID. Mm -hmm. It's a phenomena. I Mm -hmm. think people are really thinking about death care and um, end-of-life care in a way that was not perhaps happening before. So I'm one of many. uh, One of the things I love about that article is that I've heard from countless people who'd never heard of it before. And so I feel like the service of making sure people know this exists is part of this passion, part of this project.
4: It's interesting because people that I've seen in hospice or in the hospital dying, um, they don't have an advocate usually, particularly in a hospital. It's usually a family member saying, you know, excuse me, my husband's uncomfortable or the famous scene in terms of endearment when the mother's screaming, you know, give my daughter the shot. And so what you said earlier, Val, so you can't you don't administer medication, but it sounds like a important, almost imperative part of dying is to have someone there to kind of represent you. And represent, you know, your wants and your desires. Um, one of the things that I think we all know, especially when it comes to death and families, uh, a lot of family members have different ideas about how a family member should die, um, and it creates havoc in a family and lots of anger. And so, have you found that you have to kind of be an in, intermediary within families too?
2: absolutely. I can give you a situation where there was um, a family member that I uh, supported in, in the first meeting. She said, Val, I want you here, but my family is not going to accept the way that I want to die. And I need to make sure that you are sure with supporting me. And I said, I am. And sure enough, I set up a virtual meeting with a family member. And the sister came on and she was saying, you can't die like this. And we need you to keep on fighting. And and I talked to the caregiver that was there, The of course, the person that was transitioning. And I looked at him and I said, now is the time that we have to intervene. And he agreed with me. And he was the one who told the sister, this is what she has accepted. This is the way that we're going to let this process flow. You can come on board with us, but we can't let you interrupt this sacred space that we're holding for her to honor her the way that she wants to be honored. So you can get with the program or you cannot get with the program. Um, Mm -hmm. And she flew in the very next day and and she was okay um, for a while. And then she flew back and she started the family dynamics all over again.
4: But the family member was already deceased by then, right? No,
2: she was still she was still alive,
4: but we
2: still did not allow her to interrupt the space that we was holding for her sister who was transitioning.
4: Mm. Laura, what have some of your experiences been? So my work is um, is is a little different because
1: I volunteer at a hospice ward in a hospital. Um, I'm there for anyone who's there. Uh, They don't know my name. I don't know theirs. And I especially focus on people who have no friends or family and are in their last hours, weeks um, of life. So it's, it's a little different, but my training as an end of life doula um, really helps me do that work more mindfully and, and, and thoughtfully. What I find is that there's there's a real fear of all just family and friends about death mm-hmm. and that that fear brings out the worst in all of us. And the antidote to that would be another part of what doulas do, which is help people who are dying or way, maybe way before you're dying, that would be preferable, to kind of write down and share what your desires would be uh, that are according to your values and your wishes so that when someone like Val or me or someone else comes along and plays that role as that non-medical supporter, that we know what that person's values were and what they wanted. Because as you're experiencing, sometimes uh, the person who's actually dying isn't really fully uh, oriented to the situation and they need an advocate uh, and family to kind of get on board.
4: And I was gonna ask you guys, What do you do when somebody has had such cognitive decline, you know, that they're nonverbal and they're not really there? They've already written down their wants. And so if somebody had written down, let's say six months earlier, you know, I, I love birds. Then when they sort of lose, for lack of a better phrase, lose their mind, you still know to talk about birds or to play bird music like you implement what they wanted, whether they're lucid or not?
2: Correct. They they are it as if they're sitting there speaking with us like you and I are speaking today. If they're in hospice or if they're at home, I would be looking for a way to bring in a bird in a cage so that that bird Mm -hmm. can sing in the morning time or so that it can be. And see, this is what a doula does. We think outside of the box. Um, I've had a person who I've actually taken her outside. I asked her, I said, do you want to go outside? She said, sure. It was in July. Uh, It was hot. We're in Maryland. The humidity was up after five minutes of moving her entire bed out. She said, I'm hot. I want to go back inside. (laughs) I'm like, okay, I'm pouring this sweat. Just had a hot flash, but okay, we can do that. (laughs) Took her back inside, Allie. She she died the next day. She transitioned Mm. the very next day. But she had a moment of being outside for five minutes. And that's Mm. what stirs up our heart and our spirit as end-of-life doulas.
4: Walk me through... um... There's nothing typical about it, but walk me through sort of one of your experiences as an end-of-life doula. So Laura, I mean, how does that work in hospice?
1: Um, I think it, it, it's different in different systems of hospice and different situations. I'm on a hospital ward mm-hmm. and I'm not at liberty to give their exact protocol, but I will say that because I'm able to be with people who who are not surrounded by friends and family And are often very close to the end of their life. My work mainly has to do with holding hands. Mm -hmm. So I just sit and I hold people's hands and I breathe with them for as long as I'm there. And that, you know, being able to be present for somebody who's alone is, is, is a really meaningful thing. I wish more people did it in DC. We have a lot of people who end their lives alone and, uh, without any resources or personal effects, or not to mention a doula. So I think we as a society should be doing better, mm. and this should not be uh, be something. But those of us who want to volunteer to do that, uh, get get our training and and go do it, and it's very, I think, meaningful work.
4: Mm. And Val, for somebody that, let's say, wants to age at home and... Ask you to come to their like some of your clients ask you to be with them. How does that process work?
2: So it really depends on where they are in their journey. If we are six months out, then of course I'm supporting them before the transition. So um, I'm talking about different developments, like V said, voluntary stopping eating and drinking, because I want to determine how w- what's their mindset for when they transition. I'm listening actively. Um, They may want a vigil during that last breath. They may want to work on a legacy. So I will talk to them about legacy projects. I had an individual lady. This is the 48-year-old lady who wanted a body donation, but she wanted her body to be returned back to her family. And the uh, institution that she had filled out the paperwork with She was unaware that they cremated and they returned the remains to the family member. So I had to go in and find another organization, which I did luckily, that would do the research on her body and return the whole body back to the family. And then at that point, she wanted a green burial. So she had a lot of dynamics as a part of what she was thinking about. But I had some time to sit with her and talk that through. Mm. So after that process, then the during part is educating the family member on the signs and symptoms, what's changing, the breathing that's changing, uh, the discoloration of the skin that may be changing. Uh, We also address, because we are very much focus on food and eating. That's how we gather and that's how we comfort ourselves. So I educate family members on the body is shutting down. You don't have to bring in a three-course meal, especially if they are refusing food. You don't want to force that because I understand that that makes you feel better. You know, when we get sick, mom says, get some chicken noodle soup because that, that makes mom feel better. And it also makes the, the child feel better, but in this case, we talk about uh, force feeding. So it's education, education, education. Then we're bringing in what we talked about in the before months, the playlists. You know, we're holding space and we're dealing with family dynamics, if that's the case. And then afterwards, we are helping with reprocessing the whole um, event that took place just to see and check where the caregivers are emotionally. Um, If we see that they are just stuck, grief-stricken, can't move, Mm. then we do referrals to licensed clinical social workers or grief therapy. Uh, We also enact the after-death care if they want the hands washed or the feet washed or anything like that. And all of that goes right back to the beginning of listening actively and having a conversation of what the individual wants, whether it's at home or in a hospice facility.
4: If I had a uh, terminal disease and I hired one of you to be my doula and I said to you, will you?" help me take my own life could you slash would you i consider being a an
1: end-of-life doula to be a non-medical role Mm -hmm. and so that's not my purview at all um but if you're asking if as a as an end-of-life doula if i was supporting someone in their values i wouldn't call that ending their life Mm -hmm. um you know we all have different values around that but I think this is a conversation that people are having about choosing when they want to do that. And there, there are different ways that that happens. I think we all should be talking about it and we should be sharing it and people should be able to state their own wishes.
2: In my case, I would want to get an understanding of what you are thinking about when you're talking about ending your life. Are you talking about medical aid and dying, which is not legal in many states? It's only legal in about 11 states. So if I'm in Maryland, I I can't assist you with that, you know, anyway. Um, Legally. If you are talking about, yeah, legally, if you're talking about VSA, voluntarily stopping, eating, and drinking, anyone can assist you with that. And that really depends on how comfortable the doula feels honoring that request for you. And people choose that to hasten their death. In most cases, they will uh, begin to stop eating. They're not taking in any fluids. They're not taking in any substance. And you will see that the dying process will begin fairly quickly. So that would be my determination, finding out what is it that you're really talking about uh, when it comes. Now, I would help with VCF and I will provide resources for you if you're talking about medical aid and dying.
4: Val, can you talk about the different stages of death? I know you were just touching upon it, but what what are the stages? So
2: if you're a couple of months out, you are mostly still able to communicate. And this really is not, I'm going to give you a general description, but it depends on the disease, your age, your genetics, you know. Um, so in the beginning, you're still fluent. You're able to to have a conversation, but you begin to turn inwardly, the, uh, there's a period of quietness, reflection. Uh, many people will start talking about their childhood, you know, um, what's meaningful to them. We also address concerns around guilt, you know, anything that anyone wants to confess to us. We address that any unfinished business, forgiveness. We talk about that. And then when we start moving closer to the the ending part of death, we notice that there's a, a, what they call a death rattle. If you've heard of the death mm. rattle where the noise yes. is, right, the gurgling in the throat, that's an indication of, of getting close. You may see um, marbling of the skin where you see where the veins are not really as puffy as they normally would be. The skin doesn't return back to its regular position um, at this time. Most of the time, the the person is not talkative at all. You may be able to, say, wake up, and they may come up for a couple of minutes, you know, then go back. Mm -hmm. Um, So now you're not really able to communicate with them. And then the last minutes to hours, there's basically no communication. Um, They're sleeping with the mouth open. Um, You're not seeing any breathing from the chest. A lot of times you can look at the chest and see that there's no movement. And so these are some of the signs that happen across the course, depending on where you catch a person at in their journey.
4: Has anybody ever confessed things to you?
2: They have not. But that I have heard of other doulas saying yes. Wow. Yeah. That's that's fascinating. Yeah.
1: I heard some confessions from family members.
4: Oh, Oh, wait a second, yeah <laughs> what do you they confess to you,
1: yeah, um, I do find that that as oh. as we've all seen right when when you're with someone in a moment that is really profound like that mm. or the moments around it, um I think it people become very personal, and even a stranger uh will will speak of things that they might not normally do, and I have found that family members want to talk and maybe it's better that it's not a family member. Maybe it's better that it's someone that they, you know, have not had a long relationship with and they, they want to, they want to talk.
2: Mm.
1: I've been very,
4: very surprised by that and uh, very honored. Yeah. There's a lot more to come after this short break. this is a question for both of you, but what an extraordinary um, time it is when somebody is, is transitioning and you're with them. I mean, it's 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 religious almost. And how do you not feel sad yourself after somebody has passed? How do you deal with the connections that you make with the people that you're helping and advocating for? Where's the self-advocation and the self-love for you when you're helping so many people do this?
1: I would say on my on my end, as a newer person to this, um, before I was allowed to volunteer at hospice or before I was uh, able to come on as an an elder training as a doula, I was asked questions about what kind of um, attitude I was taking and whether I had self-care. That's a really big part of the training is making sure that people are not making it about themselves, as Val said, and um, know how to do what you just described, which is really hard, which is not to be about you, but still be in the room. You know, you can't disconnect. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know I do cry um, Mm -hmm. and I do have to process it when I leave.
2: For me, you know, Laura talked about we do have a self care section that we talk about when we are doing the training. But um, for me, like for instance, Ali, I supported someone over a year, a 93-year-old lady. It's very hard not to connect when you're supporting someone for that amount of time. Um, And I also was asked to attend her funeral service. Um, Afterwards, I stayed in contact and checked on her son, who was her primary caregiver, a couple of months, three to six months afterwards. And I took Mm -hmm. off three months. I needed to clear my own space before I could help the next client. Also, a part of our training, we talk about rituals and last breath rituals for family members. So as a ritual, I have a very strong connection to water And so I have to get myself to a place where I see water, hear water. That's my ritual of how I process and cleanse myself from the person or the client that I've just
4: served. I read about a woman who wanted so much to be by the beach or on the beach when she died and her doula got sand and put her hand in sands and sort of scented the room with with coconut and created a world that felt like the beach, you know, put the music on of the waves, which was so extraordinary, you know, because it's, it's simple, but it's such a beautiful way to help that person die, especially if they're in a very antiseptic room um, to have that imagination. I know when my stepfather was dying, he turned to my mother. He died during COVID. He was 99. And he said, "Um, I'm so tired. Can I go? And my mother said, oh, yes, you can go. And she talked about him being in a canoe and they were going down the river. And she sort of created, like a doula, a wonderful picture. And he just kind of fell asleep, which to me was the most beautiful way one can possibly die. But um, I, I believe that that doulas can kind of create those wishes and those atmospheres that people dream about or want when they are passing. You know, I've never been in a hospital where somebody said, oh, here, let me turn on some classical music. And, you know, it just that kind of care is not there. Exactly.
1: It's true. And, you know, the alternative to uh, that kind of experience is often the shopping channel. Um, I am surprised (laughs) at how many times I see that people are watching uh, something that really shouldn't be end of life TV fare. And I wonder if the person in the hospital, you know, if that's what they wanted or not. But I don't like to think of people exiting this world to the shopping channel.
4: Oh no! Just my pet peeve. No, I, I please don't. Not not with QVC.
2: Wow. <laughs> <And> we also <laughs> use a tool called guided imagery. So in Mm. that case, you know, we would ask you, what is your favorite place? And we would incorporate all the sounds and smells and everything that we can make that sensory happen and that connection happen for you.
1: It sounds like your mother instinctually
4: did guided imagery. Exactly, She did. She didn't realize she was doing (laughs) that, but she did. It's amazing. Yeah. So, Laura, you're the resident death doula at Historical Congressional Cemetery, right?
1: Yes, which makes me really pretty, pretty nutty. And tell me about those. Uh, we we created this as an idea. It's not been done. There are artists in residence at some cemeteries. Congressional is a really special place. Uh, they're allowing a space now for death positive activities. And so we're just creating it as we go every Saturday, having people come and just talk about these things and do activities. I'm really into active
4: what do they mean? And certainly, I'd love one of you to talk about the death positivity movement. What is a good death? I hear that phrase over and over again. A good death.
1: I'll jump in and, and give you my definition of uh, death positive. And I have to say that my mother is deeply death negative. So I often have conversations with my mom about death positive and death negative. But I I used to be involved with um, with uh, talking about sex and the term sex positive came up. And I remember thinking, well, that's weird. Like, what does that mean? But it, what it means is that you accept that this is part of the normal experience. Death is part of the normal experience and that death is neither good nor bad. And that the idea that a good death to me would be one where you, I think most people would say has dignity, a uh, peaceful it's a peaceful situation. It is without undue pain and where someone feels that they are loved. And that is part of what we're doing as as end-of-life doulas is we're providing an environment of love for a fellow human being, whether there's family there or not. And
4: that to me is what we're describing when we talk about a good death and death positive. What does your mother mean when she says death negative? Uh, I think she feels that um death is some
1: somewhere someone has made a mistake, and uh she says it's fine afterwards. you can be positive about it, but I can't feel positive about this and my My mother is a black woman who has fought all her life to live and has um has faced enormous challenges and had to f- scrap and fight for herself in a world that wasn't uh wasn't really supporting her mm. so I totally understand her feeling and I understand her distrust of medical, um, you know, expertise. Does your mother want to have a doula with her? Uh, That would require a conversation about about this. And um, I, you know, I think a lot of us live in families where that's that's a difficult conversation to have. I'm willing to talk to my mom about it. Hey, mom. (laughs) Yeah. But I think that, that we start the conversation. That's what we're trying to do with this project that you read about is start the
4: conversations. Yeah. I have aging parents now. Like I said, my father's in hospice and I can't help but think about my own mortality. It keeps me up sometimes at night. And I think about death and I think about my children. And it was always, like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, it was, we never spoke about it in my family ever. And I I have a series of grandparents that took their own lives, and that was never spoken of. And so for me, right now, at this moment in my life, I'm actually fascinated by all of this information, because I think there is a way to have some kind of control over how you leave. And there's, there's so much of it, like you said, Laura, is discussion. You know, at, at some point, I'm going to talk to my children about it. I want to talk to my husband about it. What are we thinking? Um, how do we want to do this? What, where do I want to be? What do I want to be? Um, and I think most people ignore the subject until either it's too late or uh, they sort of, you know, look to the medical community. And so, like, you, you deal with this. We can't deal with it. So true.
2: I agree with that. I think we often seek hospice care too late. You know, and we often have the conversation too late. And I think on one of your previous podcasts, you had a guest that was talking about near death experience, right?
4: Thank you for listening,
2: Val. Sure,
4: <laughs> <laughs> like and subscribe. <laughs> I have,
2: <laughs> but you know, we 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 can be at a restaurant and choke and die. We you know we don't have to be eighty and ninety. You look at the young adults that are dying on the streets, you know, and I went back to my university to train or to talk about advanced care planning and dying. And I was absolutely amazed at the students in the age range of 22 to 28 that were willing to listen and had comments afterwards. And so um, I just connected with a business here in Columbia, Maryland. She put out a Deaf Cafe which I did two weeks ago. We hadn't had one in Columbia, Maryland since 2013. We had a waiting list. We had to refuse people. So individuals, COVID unfortunately helped us bring out death, you know, and so the fear is still there, but to have someone be able to hold a space without judgment while you are considering your mortality is a good thing that's happening in our society now.
4: Now, for my listeners, can you explain a death cafe? Because I don't want a reservation. <laughs> what am I going to order at the death cafe? A conversation. <laughs> Laura, so tell me about it. I, I've been to many death cafes, mm. um,
1: but I, I, I facilitated one for the first time yesterday. And again, just like Val said, there's a real interest among young people. This was not just a bunch of 80-year-olds. It wasn't even, you know, us 60-some-year-olds. There were a, a, there was a quite a mix of people. But one phenomena that I've found, and Val and I have talked about this, is it's almost all women. It's like the union of men decided that we will send one to each of your events. But that's it, just one. And I don't understand it. Why are women so interested in going to death cafes and coming to death-positive events and becoming doulas.
2: I I just think the the connection to our emotions, um, you know, big boys don't cry and wipe your tears and you're the man of the house, you know, so they don't have opportunities to grieve openly. And a grieving man um, has a reputation of and I'm not speaking about all men, but um, has a reputation of being a weak man. And so they are not get ready to come into a space to talk about death, to show their emotions. So a lot of that conversation with men go unspoken. For instance, mm-hmm. you know, I have brought my family along because I've constantly normalized the conversation when I first started talking to my son about it, he would sneak out of the room in the middle of the conversation. I'm like, where is the boy? Where's the child? You know, and then the December mm-hmm. before COVID, my son came to my home and said, Ma, this is what I want you to do if I die. And it was completely, completely, honest to God, differently than what I would have done. And so when we don't have these conversations, Allie, we don't honor the very people that are in our homes, the people that we sleep beside, the people that we love. You know, we assume this is what they want, but because we don't have enough carriage in our throats, To say, let's sit down and talk about it. But look, after you normalize it, it took eight years for me to normalize the conversation with him. But guess what? I now know how to serve my son. And I feel Mm. at peace with being able to do that. And he's only 30 years old. So you have to get past the fear of thinking that just because you talk about death, you're going to die. You know, to have a better death, have the conversation about it.
4: And so when you go to the death cafes, basically there are forums in which you discuss preparing for death, how you would like to transition uh, and figuring that out. Is that correct? There, There's
2: no real agenda. We just let discussions flow organically.
4: Yeah,
1: I, I think that death cafes, which were um, they were UK phenomena mm-hmm. originally, they are one of the many ways that people are starting to have these conversations. And I find it a very profound one for the reason Val just said, which is there is no agenda. There's there isn't actually any advice given or tools. It is a bunch of unique strangers come into a room and it's a space in which you have to discuss dying and death. And you 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 listen to each other, you talk, and it everything that happens is because of the people in that room that day, which is a kind of a unique experience.
2: And I just, it's funny, I just had one of the young ladies in her early 30s, maybe latter 20s, she attended the Deaf Cafe that I had. I just got an email from her yesterday saying that I sat with my father who transitioned. I used some of the topics that we talked about in the Deaf Cafe, and I thank you so much for holding that space for us to learn. Wow.
4: And we'll be right back.
0: Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Haya. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
3: Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like... The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store.
4: Welcome back to Go Ask Alley. So how do I how do I approach this conversation and how do other people Talk to their loved ones? I have two answers to that question really briefly.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, One is start with humor. I think that's very important. Um, I also think to look at it as kindness rather than as some sort of burden or something creepy. It is a kindness to let your wishes be known and, and to express your values to your loved ones. And it doesn't have to be, you know, at the end of life. So it's kindness and humor hmm.
4: that I can do <laughs> I, I suggest to
2: start from a place of yourself so when you are sitting down at the table with your loved ones you're saying this is what I would like for you to do for me I have been considering more hmm. my mortality lately this is how I want you to honor me. I want to be at the beach. I would like to have a certain type of music played. So now it's I, 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 because you're, if you're sitting down saying, tell me what you want, tell me what you want, that's abrupt. You know, I'm not ready. You may no. be considering your mortality, but. What, what makes you think I'm considering mine? And so it's more of I, I, I. And that's how I got my son to the place. Because I normalized the conversation with I, I, I so much. He was comfortable enough to say, okay, well, let me now tell mom what it is that I want her to do for me. And so start with the I and then be open to whatever it is, whether they're willing to accept what you're saying or not, you know, share it. Come back a couple of days, a couple of months later, go back with the I have been considering my mortality. And this is what I want you to do for me to honor my life as I
4: transition. That's great. You know, I've done um, a podcast with people about money. You know, be- people are very reluctant to talk about money. And one of the things we discussed was putting together a book for your children that just tells you where money is. And I'm wondering if there's a way for people to have conversations and even create a book that's sort of your, my transitioning to afterlife book. You know, if later on you're not lucid enough to maybe verbalize it that says, this is how I would like to leave. It's interesting, Ali, because there are quite a few tools like that.
1: But people don't know they exist. They don't have anyone to help them work on it. And I I think if people knew that they were out there and that was like your Thanksgiving activity, uh, some of the family members will leave the room. But it's a really wonderful experience to do it. I have, for example, what we call a death binder. And there are a lot of death binders out there that you can create. You can create one that's already got all the tabs on it. Mm-hmm. And there are books and workbooks. And uh, end-of-life doulas also do this work. We help people find the tool that suits them and they help them get to work on it. And that's really my mission. I want to get people to start working on that and then edit it throughout their lives. That would be perfect.
4: Do you encourage people to write their own obituary?
1: (laughs) I do. And we had a workshop on that at Congressional Cemetery a couple of weeks ago, and fascinating to me it was young people mostly it was a big group and the question that got people got stuck on surprised me i don't know if either of you would would agree but it was the uh the part on the form where i asked them to fill out who they were leaving behind and people got stuck and and really felt a lot of emotion
4: wow
1: that's something to think about right Mm-hmm. And here's the best review I could find of the people who participated in that last month. Uh, a young person wrote back to me later and said, I did not like my, my obituary as written. And so I'm making changes in my life so that my obituary will be different.
4: Oh, that's amazing. That's great. Yes. That's great. <laughs>
1: I can think of no better outcome. Yeah. That's why we're doing this project.
4: It's not just about dying. It's about how we live. I love that. Yeah. I think people have dreams a lot. You you hear people say, oh, I had this dream, or uh, sometimes I have this idea about going to my own funeral and, you know, who's going to be there, who's going to show up, uh, what does it look like? And I think it might be an interesting exercise for people to kind of have a creative writing assignment where... They got to be kind of a ghost at their own funeral. What would they want it to look like? Right. Who would they want to be there? What are the flowers like? What it you know, just it, that would be kind of a wonderful exercise. So oh, great. And we actually do that as part of the training. You do? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, well, look at me.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> You're halfway there. Exactly. <laughs> I guess I, I, I am. Um, my last question, because you have been so incredibly insightful and helpful. Um, What are you seeing when people are preparing for their own death now? Besides the people that come to the death cafe, are you seeing that the majority of people are not dealing with it? They're not confronting it? And they're not talking about it or I mean, Laura, earlier you said you sort of seen a shift where people, particularly young people, are starting to discuss it a lot more.
1: I I definitely admire the fact that there are younger people that are willing to have that conversation. I'm really worried about people who don't because it it causes chaos and fear. Um, But I think the answer is people generally do not make plans and have not figured out what their values are and are not living as if they're mortal. I always forget that word. We are mortals. The, yeah. You know, even in hospice, a lot of people don't have a plan. Uh, I've, I've walked into people who, who just lost a loved one and had no plan for where even the body of the person was going to go mm. or what that person wanted as far as disposition or memorialization. So I, I think we're in denial as a culture. And I, I think we live better if we get out of that denial. So maybe the young people will lead us on this.
4: Yeah, I hope so. The young people have a lot of work to do in our country. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, kids. <laughs> yeah, sorry, kids. But I say to my daughters every day, like, it's up to you. Fix the climate, <laughs> fix all of it. So I've asked you many questions about death, and transitioning and being a doula. So now I'm going to turn the tables and allow both of you to ask me a question. And I'm going to start with Val. You can ask me anything you want. Wow. Well, I'm
2: going to ask you a serious question, but I really want to ask you a funny question. I have squirrels that are eating up my lights. I really want to know how to get rid of squirrels. They're disrespectful, but
4: let me just go to the real question. Well, you need to borrow my hound dog. My hound dog will hunt a squirrel. I'm telling you, he pulls me on the leash because he chases squirrels all the time. I'm going to I'm gonna FedEx him to you for a week. Okay. Yeah.
2: We need yeah. But, but, well, now that you know the role of, of the doula and, and if, if Laura and I were your doula, what would be one element or what would be something that you would like for us to do to help you transition peacefully?
4: Well, one thing is I, I do like touch. So I would definitely want Laura holding one hand and Val, you holding another hand um i would like uh music
0: mm-hmm.
4: a nice classical box mass and b minor mm-hmm. i would like in this is where i'm really going to challenge you i would like to have my bed covered in dogs when i die oh i love dogs my dogs sleep on my bed i i just it, you'd have to go to the pound i don't know the neighborhood you'd have to just rally up a whole <laughs> bunch of dogs and put them on the bed um, and I think that would that would be. And this is just you know I'm just right. starting this process. And yes. believe me, when I start writing in my journal, I will add things. There'll be mint chocolate chip ice cream somewhere in there. But <laughs> to me, that would be a nice peaceful thing to have the touch of two women, uh, maternal, and to have all these dogs on my bed. That that to me is heaven. There would not be any shopping network. <laughs> thank you for sharing. And Laura, can I answer anything for you?
1: I'm I'm envisioning you surrounded by dogs. Yeah. It's beautiful. Mm. So mine is a little serious. Okay. Um you you mentioned your father
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that he's 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 working his way through the process. And I know that you mentioned that he had dementia as my dad, one of my dads did. And I remember the minute that I was—I decided I'm going to remember you this way, Daddy. And I held his hands and I said, "I'm going to remember you like this." He was teaching me how to grill. Um, what is the moment that you think of when you when your dad was your dad the way you remembered him, and that you're going to hold?
4: Oh, what a lovely question! I think the the image that I hold is my father. He was a reporter for the Washington Post. And later in life, he discovered painting and he loved to paint and he could sit on a grassy knoll for hours and meticulously paint a watercolor. And I think that's when he was most at peace, when he was happiest. So those are the moments I hold close and remember and like to remember about him is when he would be, you know, in his tattered corduroys and an old sweater sitting there painting away because that was sort of him and his essence that's beautiful thank you for doing this thank you for enlightening everybody um it's a incredible subject and it's like you said i think it's something we should all be talking about all the time and when i put down that roast chicken tonight george stephanopoulos is going to get an earful because We're going to start talking about this. Great. I'm going to say to him, if you don't tell me what you want to do, then I'm going to have my own plans for you and you're not going to like it. (laughs) Thank you guys.
1: Thank you very much for this. We
2: appreciate it.
4: You know, I'm sitting in a hotel room and it's snowing outside in Boston. And as I said at the beginning of this podcast, I'm very immersed in this. And after I sign off, I'm going back to the hospital to see my mother. And one of the things I've really realized, and you don't really realize until you're in that situation, they, and I, when I say they, I mean my parents and people in the geriatric community, they need that handholding. They need to know that they're supported and loved. And particularly when I was talking to Laura, you know, the idea that she's in these hospitals where people have nobody else around them and she holds their hand is so huge. Because at the end, if you're transitioning, the idea that the touch of a human being is right there is so imperative. So thank you both Valoria and Laura for telling us their stories and providing such an important service. And for more info on what you've heard in this episode, check out our show notes. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review Go Ask Ally, and follow me on social media on Instagram at the real AlleyWentworth. Now, if you'd like to ask me a question or suggest a guest or a topic to dig into, I would love to hear from you. And there's a bunch of ways you can do it. You can call or text me at 323-364-6356, or you can email a voice memo right from your phone to podcast at gmail.com. And if you leave a question, you just might hear it on Go Ask Alley. Go Ask Alley is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility
2: Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.